So we've made it to Joshua 23, and in case you missed it, we don't have much left. We have uh, one more chapter of Joshua, then after that we'll have the introduction to Ruth, we'll be off for spring break, and then four weeks of each chapter of Ruth. So we're almost to the end. This has been a long stretch from January to now, and you guys have done well and hung in there. But we're going to talk about Joshua 23 today, or I'm going to talk about it. And, um, and now we've gotten to the point where the Israelites have fought for years for this land that God had promised them. And after centuries of slavery and decades of wandering, they now had peace and rest in a rich and beautiful land. They were home, and it was an abundant home indeed. Can you imagine the collective feeling of contentment, joy, accomplishment, and freedom? It was a sweet time of their history. Their God had proven himself faithful and unbelievably powerful. He was trustworthy. Joshua, the Israelite's warrior father, is getting old, and he, being led by the Lord, addresses the people. He reminds them of what they have seen and what they have experienced in following the Lord's leading to take the land of Canaan. He reminds them that the God who had been faithful in the past would most assuredly be faithful in the future. What they had seen was evidence of a God who did not change and they could, and they could continue to experience his powerful faithfulness to his people if they would only be very careful to love him. In fact, they must be very careful to love the Lord their God and obey him. Joshua could have ended there. It could have been a simple speech. See what the Lord has done? Now love him and follow him. And in our removal from the situation, because it's not personal to us, this might appear to be enough. But this speech reminds me more of my speeches to my own children. The personal, loving relationship with my children drives me to make speeches that are very similar to this. And while I love an economy of words, my children drive me to say more and more and more and more. So far, as each of our children have kind of graduated from childhood to adolescence, which happens around high school, uh, we seem to make similar speeches. And it's Sam, Reagan, Drew, and Ben. I'd like for you to look around. Do you see that we work hard to be able to provide what we can for you? The Lord has been generous and gracious to us. We have so much, and through that, you have lots of freedom. You want for nothing. But what we ask of you is that you listen to us and take care of your business. You need to obey our words. You need to honor our family, and we expect you to work hard towards your potential and whatever you choose to do. You have all the freedom in the world to do things that are good for you, good for our family, and honoring to the Lord. Do you see what gifts you've been given? Now do it. And at that moment, my children go out and perfectly obey my words. <laughs> There's an immediate epiphany in their heart, and they say, oh, yeah. Thankful for my parents and to the gifts of the Lord, and that I'm going to be all I can be for them and for God. <laughs> Obviously, you know that's not true. Um, that's certainly not how it goes, but it is often how I expect it to go. I often expect to say it once, and they're going to do it. But the launching speech continues, and I say, if you do not do what we say, that freedom comes to an end. 
those friends that you love, that phone you cannot live without, the car that leads you to all that freedom. They originated, originated with us, they belong to us, and we will take them back and shut them down as soon as you begin to show that you do not care. And then I usually reiterate it all over again. We love you. We think you can do this. We are happy to give you these things and support you. All you have to do is honor us. But if you don't, you will not enjoy your life any longer. <laughs> and as an earthly parent, I say it over and over and over for the next few years as we vacillate between understanding and rebellion. I'm often driven to exhaustion and confusion, and I vow to give up on them. And then the Lord reminds me of how much he's loved me and given me these precious gifts of children so that I can honor him with it. This speech that Joshua gives is gold. He's representing Yahweh, the most high and holy God of Israel, and he gives the speech of his life begging his children member, exhorting them to love and obey their heavenly king who had fought for, driven out, and given to them more than they ever could have imagined or hoped for. But like any good parent, he makes it clear to them what will happen if they forget his goodness and find their confidence in themselves, neglecting the fact that they are totally a depraved people outside of his grace. There was a word that I missed when I asked you to highlight the repeated words and phrases of this chapter, and the word was good. And maybe you noticed that. Beginning in verse 13, Joshua uses that word five times to describe the gifts that God had given to the people. Good ground, good things, and good land. These good gifts originate from a good God. A.W. Pink describes the goodness of God as such, and I quote, the goodness of God refers to the perfection of his nature. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There is such an absolute perfection in God's nature and being that nothing is wanting to it or defective in it and nothing can be added to it to make it better. James 1, 16 and 17 drives the concept of God's goodness home. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything that is good derives from the very goodness of God. In fact, nothing can be declared good if it is not consistent with God's very nature. He alone determines what is good because goodness is perfect in him. And I love how in those verses, good gifts are given in light of the immutable, unchangeable nature of God. There is not even a shadow of change in him. So he can do nothing but good acts and give nothing but good gifts. And let's consider for a moment what constitutes good gifts. And I'm going back to Pink again with another quote. The goodness of God is seen in the variety of natural pleasures which he has provided for his creatures. His benevolence appears in the varied flavors which he has given to meats, vegetables, and fruits. Our physical lives could have been sustained without beautiful flowers to regale our eyes with their colors and our nostrils with their sweet perfumes. 
with comparatively rare exceptions, men and women experience a far greater number of days of health than they do of sickness and pain. There is much more creature happiness than creature misery in the world. Even our sorrows admit of considerable alleviation, and God has given to the human mind a pliability which adapts itself to circumstances and makes the most of them. So Pink says that flowers, fruits, breath, alleviation from our misery, and even adaptability to circumstances, these are good gifts that originate from a good God that can only give that which is good. And this is where we find our hope. As you work through Bible study at Grace, you are constantly asked to find the promises of God. And we get weary of that, don't we? You see the same questions week after week. We lose sight of what that purpose is, but actually it has a great purpose. First, you write down what you learned about the Lord there. What did he, what did he say? What did he do? And then you write down what his promises are. And that couple is attached to the knowledge that he will not change. And this good God who has done good things and given good gifts will continue to forever. So we remember the history and live in light of the promise, and that is a wonderful way to live. But of course, like a good parent, Joshua did not stop with the history and the promise. Why are the warnings required? Because of us. Fallen and sinful people must be reminded of the consequences of forgetting the truth of God and changing it, exchanging it for a lie. My children always receive those speeches well. They're kind of motivational. I am for you. You can do this. It's going to be great. But then they sleep, and tomorrow comes, and it's certainly a lot harder to put into practice than it actually appeared. Laziness, boredom, popularity, exhaustion, all manner of things creep in to steal the confidence in the mandate. And just like the Israelites, and just like me, my children tend to wander and wonder if that was really what I meant. It's not hard for us to imagine life in Canaan. Life there is generally good. They inhabit houses they didn't build. They reap giant-sized grapes from fields they didn't originally plow. For a generation, they were so thankful to the Lord for his goodness and mercy. They enjoyed the beauty and pleasures of the land they remembered. But the generation passed, and the people began to forget. How many times does a Canaanite native have to call into question the laws of the Israelites before they falter and fail? Why can't you mix polyester and cotton in that tunic? What if your other goat dies? Do you have, really have to sacrifice that goat? Why can't we get married? I love you, and I will let you worship however you want to. Can't you hear the serpents whisper over and over again? Is that really what God meant? It's not hard for us to imagine because like my children, it's what we live every day. That's why the warnings are important too. The Israelites needed to remember that they were fallen, tainted by sin, attracted to pleasuring the flesh, prone to worshiping anything but God. They had not gotten the land. They had been given the land. They needed to remember where those gifts came from. But they forgot, and we forget. 
And we know that the consequences for Israel were severe. Civil war and exile was ahead in their future. But does that mean that the goodness of God ceased in his wrath? Not at all. Even in the expression of his wrath, God remains good. And let's go back to pink. Would God be good if he punished not those who ill use his blessings, abuse his benevolence, and trample his mercies beneath their feet? It will be no reflection upon God's goodness, but rather the brightest exemplification of it when he shall rid the earth of those who have broken his laws, defied his authority, mocked his messengers, scorned his son, and persecuted those for whom he died. The wrath of God expressed on earth is still the expression of God's goodness. Our hearts long for justice because we are made in his image and he has declared that justice is good. The Israelites began to feel entitled to the land and abused what God had given. They no longer felt gratitude and joy in their deliverer. They questioned his decree and demanded their own way. And our good God had every right to exercise his wrath on an ungrateful people. He had, after all, graciously warned them. I would not be a good and loving parent if I did not exact consequences on my children for their disobedience. Would God be a good father of Israel if he also did not exact consequences on his people for their disobedience? I was brought up in Memphis as a good Southern Baptist girl, like many of you, and American patriotism was held to almost as high a standard as the fruit of the Spirit. And that was an error for sure. But I am thankful for the freedom I have had to live in a country where my individual rights have been honored and valued, and it breaks my heart to hear potential presidents say, let's rethink America. I am 45. And as hard as it is for me to believe, I have to accept that I am middle-aged. Middle-aged is something that my mother was, not me. <laughs> we learned this week that Joshua thought that history matters. Well, regarding history, I want to admit something. I am a borderline idiot about American history of the 20th century. Accepting the Depression and the Second World War, I know very little it almost seemed as if I got a double dose of the revolution, the Louisiana Purchase, and the Civil War, but then when it came to get a little closer to my era, we seemed to run out of time. And I'm sure that's not really how it went, but that's the impression I have. I would think, oh, finally, something new. Oh, darn, the semester's over. So I know very little of the First World War, squat about the Korean War, a little about the Vietnam War thanks to Forrest Gump, and I am almost completely devoid of knowledge of the Cold War. I mean, I remember being afraid of the Russians. They were always the bad guys in the movies until they weren't. Before you begin to mouth off about the problems with the public school system, I didn't go to public school. But in fairness to my school, and I do have a former teacher here, she was the best one. Oh. Um, I was only 12 years old in 1987 when Ronald Reagan told Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall. The history of the Cold War was not yet written when I was in school. They had to peek behind the Iron Curtain to really understand what it was all about. Ironically, the next year, 1988, happened to be the year that Bernie Sanders honeymooned in USSR. I'm into podcasts right now. Sometimes I'm into TV, sometimes books, but right now it's podcasts. 
And I am enthralled with a new one. Maybe you are too. It's called The Cold War by Esoteric Radio. If it is full of lies, please do not tell me. It seems very legitimate. And the empty space of my brain is soaking it up. I find it fascinating, and I highly recommend it. Written and narrated by Bill Whittle, this podcast presents the strange decades-long battle between the United States and Russia, or more accurately, the West and the East. Mr. Whittle laments that often the Cold War is presented as a stalemate between two equal ideologies, like blue or red, when that is massively far from the truth. Mr. Whittle is now in his 60s and married to a Russian woman. In his poetic podcast, he describes the horror of living behind the Iron Curtain, where you were far more afraid of what you were locked in with than what was beyond. Horror, murder, starvation, atrocity, life devoid of individual value and compassion. While this may sound silly to anyone older than me, because of course, communism, iron curtains, walls, all of it is evil, untrustworthy, and godless. But I wonder for those of us that must be my age or younger, if we just don't grasp it. Because what we know about all of this is literally through the eyes of Hollywood producers. I mean, after all, they did cast Sean Connery as a Russian in The Hunt for the Red October. If what I am learning about gulags and KGB, Stalin and terror states are true, how is it possible that just 30 years after the fall of the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics could the American Democrat Party, Democratic Party, nominate a self-proclaimed socialist to be their presidential candidate. It's just 30 years. Countries just now recovering from the reign of terrorist communism must be baffled by us. Is it really the promise of free stuff? Is that all it takes to wipe the memory of hundreds of thousands of political ex executions? Is this what forgetting looks like? Forgive me for bringing in politics, but the similarity was too eerie for me to ignore. The Israelites forgot God's goodness, just like we do. While America is not the new Canaan, and I do not want you to hear me say that, it's only an earthly picture of what forgetting the depravity of man and the perfection of God yields, entitlement, ungratefulness, and hatred of a holy law. But God is still good. Believe it or not, Canaan was also just an earthly picture of the fulfilled promises of God. The Israelites were going to forget. God's entire plan had not yet unfolded. There was much more to fill the pages of God's history book. His judgment on his people was good and just. There's another beauty within these ideas of history and promise, warning and judgment, that is not immediately obvious to us, and we have to read further to see it, and that's the preservation of God's people. Israel thought they had arrived like a heavenly kingdom, and I can imagine that the judgment of losing the land was like the condemnation of hell. We know how the story goes. They did not. Even though, even through civil war and exile, God always preserved a remnant. Throughout the future generations, there were always some who remembered. We speak in collective terms. We enjoy collective generosities. 
and endure collective consequences. The Bible does that too. Yes, the Israelites forgot, but some remembered. There was always someone who got appointed, anointed, sorry, to point the way and remind the people who they belonged to and what he had called them to do. That is still true today. We can see it happening, can't we? There is a great sifting in the church of our time that was not evident 30 years ago or maybe even seven years ago. But it's evident now, and we must remember. It is by God's grace we still sit here today and pour over the truths of God's word with a desire to be transformed by it. We don't know what tomorrow looks like. It's not yet been revealed. But while there is uncertainty all around, God is still good and his word does not fall. We still enjoy the breath of our lungs, the rain that promises the fragrant flowers and the sweetness of the fruit of the land. There may be judgment ahead, but it will not last for God's people. He will preserve his church and reward his children with a permanent land more beautiful and bounteous than Canaan could ever have been, and they will enjoy that land with him forever. Courage may be required of us, just like the Israelites, but may we be found faithful to love him, and may we, like Joshua, ring the bells of God's promises and sound the alarm of God's inevitable judgment. Let's pray. Father, help us to honor you by our remembering and help us to live in light of your goodness and your promises because you never change and you are always good and you are trustworthy. We want to be a women that are different from the world, that look different because we remember. Help us to do that, Father, as we leave this room. I thank you for each one of these women. Protect them and care for them. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.